Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're off, we're off, we're off. Uh, we'll put that aside for now and uh, we'll bring that up later, maybe in a song or at the end. But uh, it, I need answers. Um, we're you're listening to uh, Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Uh, my name is Nick. Uh, I'm back rocking the sound desk this week and I'm joined as ever by my trusty companion, Matt. I didn't, know, I didn't know if you were going to introduce me. I had to introduce myself. Come on, mate. I mean, you're driving the desk. I am. I mean, I've been working really hard on my telepathic uh, abilities. I just feel like we're at that stage now. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not picking up your messages. You had, we had Marina Certis on last week, and you're picking up some tips of how to be an empath. Uh, whatever that is. I guess it's something to do with... Telepathy, in it? Is it? I guess. I don't know. Isn't an empath, is it when you sort of kind of understand other people's feelings? It's when you're in charge. Well, come on. I was, I was pretending that we'd had a guest on and I didn't understand anything about what she's done with her life. But what we've... Uh, well, empath, empath is short for empathetic. Hmm. So it's just an understanding, an intuitive understanding. If it's me, though, I'm probably more of a path. Empathetic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, that's the joke and uh well done all of you for writing in and saying that you got it um so uh yeah um an empath empathetic so i guess it means that you have a psychic ability to understand how other people are feeling but um i think i've always had that uh it's mm. called not being a cunt <laughs> i think it is i think it's like i don't think there should be a proper word for it i think it's being a bit kind of it's also just being a bit social I, it, in a situation there. Also, if, it, if that's your skill i don't see why that should automatically get you a seat at the uh in in the bridge mm-hmm. do you know what i mean it's like oh I'm, I'm i'm good at sort of like picking up when um when i shouldn't finish off sentences do you know what i mean it's like yeah, exactly yeah. This might even come up later again with our guest. We'll see what happens. Maybe. Maybe. Are they into Star Trek? <laughs> we can find out. We certainly <laughs> shall try. <laughs> um, so, make uh, it first, so. But, mm, make it so. Commander Riker, Commander Riker. <laughs> I could see your belly from all the way at the back of the room. <laughs> Is that Star Trek? Um, it's uh <laughs> is that one of the movies it's uh it was, Pat- <laughs> it was patrick stewart's uh i remember yeah it was patrick stewart's uh spat with james corden at an award ceremony <laughs> i could see your belly from all the way at the back of the room <laughs> if you fancy the jonas brothers that much <laughs> cover your belly cover your belly oh sir Oh, I do apologise. Oh, well, please, by all means, continue. I'm sorry. One more? Shall I, <laughs> shall I give him one more? Please do. <laughs> okay. oh, what, what a wonderful rarity it is to see uh, a knight of the realm dying on his ass. Oh, one more? Shall I, shall I give him? That's like, uh, just Google it. It's incredible. It's, it is incredible. It's one yeah. of the best ones. One there of the are, best ones. It's sort of why YouTube was invented. There are no winners here. 
It's, nah. no, no, nobody wins. And I feel like they're kind of cross purposes as well because I don't know if either one of them is like it feels like both of them seem to be misunderstanding what the other one's doing. It's no. quite difficult to get to the bottom of what, think, what they're all going for. I, it's, it's, I, that's because you're, um, you're an empath. I'm an empath. Yeah. Uh, no, you're not. No. That'd be opposite. Because you've got it wrong. Like I think it's I think it's clear that Petra Stewart is drunk, and he's uh, got up from his table where I, James Corden is having a ceremony, and um, and uh, Petra Stewart has got to give out an award, and obviously at his table everyone's been drinking and they've all decided that they dislike. For whatever reason, I'm not. I'm. St- I'm on the fence. Uh, James Corden, and um, so Patrick Stewart assumes that what him and his inner circle think about James Corden is what everyone in the room thinks about James Corden. So he goes off on what is essentially a private joke about uh, how unprofessional he thinks James Corden is, and no one in the room agrees. And then James Corden attacks. <laughs> Oh man! Is it's it the Brit Awards worst. as well? Like whenever no, you see the, it's not. I think it's a fashion magazine award show. Right, right. Whenever you see those Brit Award things, like it, when people used to go, "Oh yeah, this person's hosting the Brit Awards now," and it felt like it was always a big, a big gig for someone to get. Yeah, but it always happens. looked like the worst thing to do. No one's listening. You can hear the cra- the like the noise crowd. Of no one listening to you. The Brit you're Awards, trying to introduce yeah. people. It's, no it's, one cares what's it's, happening. It's like a big scale, big budget chortle awards in many mm. ways. Uh, well, I think the trouble is, right, as much as people want to think that it does, uh, music and comedy does not, it, they have different audiences and they do not go together. That way. I mean, I make it work when I do songs, <laughs> but generally it doesn't work. So if you're like a comedian, I mean, comedy is all about comedy. There's no real place in comedy for being cool, and that's what music is all about. Yeah, and it's so if it's, you're, it's uncool to listen to the silly man on stage dicking around if you're your Liam or your Noel and Gallagher. <sighs> So, like, it's not cool to sort of like. So, so I think music is sincere in a way that comedy is the opposite of. Right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You've got to be like, to be, you've got to be kind of, yeah, I'm really mean what I'm doing there. It's like, well, it's like the Oscars. It's like acting is sincerity. So when you have someone coming up on stage, it's all right to make in jokes about Hollywood, about like. Uh, plastic surgery i guess and sort of like how much someone's dresses are do you know what i mean on like the, the staying young for as long as you possibly you know like i'm just thinking about the sort of stuff that you know your david letterman's your steve martin's your billy crystals your Whoopi goldberg's the sort of material that they would have done at the oscars but they're on the inside and then when you get someone like Ricky Gervais doing the Golden Globes, then it gets like controversial because he's sort of an outsider that's destroying yes, it. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, "Fuck off! This is our awards. This is this is our one of the one of the uh, hundreds of days of this is only one of the hundreds <laughs> of days a year that we get to feel special about ourselves. How dare you uh, take us down from the inside out?" And and so, yeah, I think like whenever you're doing an award ceremony, it's kind of like you want like for like. You want exactly. But if you are a uh, performer, if you are, 
Do you know what I mean? If you're Billy Crystal, which is a dated reference, but if you're Billy Crystal, you've got to know that you're not going to get an Oscar. Yeah, I think that's... I wonder if you're hosting the awards, kind of going, I'm probably... That means I'm kind of not going to get one. I guess I'm out of the running. Yeah, I'm kind of... I'm, I'm, um, and I guess also being an outsider in some ways quite a powerful position because it's sort of saying, I don't care. Whereas actually, I think, I do care. I would quite like one. I'd love an Oscar, but I'd love an Oscar. If I'm not getting an Oscar, then I'll at least host the Oscars. Um, and I think, yeah, your Brits, your, um, you know, some other music awards, I think they're, uh, go on, name one other. What is it? The Grammys? Yeah, that's one. That's definitely, yeah. Uh, uh, the, 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 the Mobo Awards. Um, I think if you, you, what you want is you want maybe a living legend to be handing out the awards. Someone yeah. that knows, you know, if you had like Tom Jones or Dolly Parton come on stage and give an award to a young act, it would probably, no, I don't know. Because then you'd also get like the railing against the, the system and you'd kind of like go, all right, granddad. We're the new. We're cool and new. You're old. Yeah, you do get that, don't you? So it's almost. And then, then what you're likely to get is you're likely to get someone that's very off the moment, but um, sort of a bit. You know. Oh look, we've got. Just trying to think of anyone that's off the moment. <laughs> I can't. But at award ceremonies, what you what you get is you get like Madonna coming out and getting off with Brits. And uh, does my microphone keep cutting out, by the way? Yeah, yeah, just occasionally. But like for a second. Yeah, I know, but, you know, we're recording. (laughs) Maybe maybe there's something... I think they were saying, could it be your phone? Could it be your phone that's No, it's not my phone, it's this microphone. It's been cutting in and out. Uh, But yeah, then you get, like, uh, Madonna, like, uh, getting off with Britney Spears, and then it's kind of like, oh, you're just... It's like this desperate stab at relevancy. And it, it's like, oh, it's just, you know, sad, but not as in sad as in cool, but sad as in, you know, brings a tear to your eye. <laughs> I always think it's tricky as well when they're doing like, when, you, when you're doing the Oscars, you've got, the Oscars almost gets a free pass because it's like, if you're at the Oscars, you're famous. If you're, if you're handing out an award, it's like saying, so you can kind of be an unknown who's about to break through. And doing the award itself is like going, oh, they must be doing well, they're handing out an Oscar. Whereas all other award ceremonies, whoever you get, I always find I'm judging it like, are they big enough to be here? That feels a bit low rent to get them. The BAFTAs I find particularly, I'm particularly judgy at the BAFTAs when, uh, when I'm sort of judging, judging talent and going, oh, is that all we've got? Is that all we've got to hand out an award? Sure. Like it's, it's that when it's like our, our acting royalty versus like anyone at the Oscars well, and it'll be someone comes out and you go oh is that it we um what did we do we uh filmed I fi- I made a film that was out at the cinemas a couple of Fridays ago in America in American cinemas I'm not in America uh, have I ever been to the cinema in America <laughs> uh yeah I, I went to see Guardians of the Galaxy in Los Angeles but I'm not really that familiar about how like limited release works so I made a film, um, uh, you know, I was in a film, has a good cast, a great cast. 
and uh, we filmed it in um, uh, Rockfield Studios in Wales, where they recorded. It's called Love Spreads, uh, and uh, it's directed by Jamie Adams. And we filmed it in uh, Rockfield Studios, which is the music studios in the middle of uh, the rolling green hills of Wales. Um, where they recorded Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, Wonderwall. It's actually got the wall from Wonderwall. Uh, Stone Roses recorded their second album there, which took them like a year and a half. And then they filmed some documentaries there. I think they filmed a documentary about the Stone Roses there. And they also filmed uh, there's parts of Supersonic, the Oasis documentary that's filmed there. And they actually, where Oasis was staying is where we were staying when we were filming. It's not particularly glamorous, but it, it gets the job done. And basically it's like this, um, uh, it's a dining room and a living room with uh, like eight bedrooms that all come off like this central uh, room and then um, like ensuite bedrooms. And, um, and so I was there for 11 days in 2017, 2018. The film was meant to come out last year, but it got delayed because of COVID. And we were all meant to go to the Tribeca Film Festival to watch it get released. And then again, it got delayed until this year. And then we couldn't travel. So it got sort of like uh, a soft launch rather than a hard launch. And um, I think I'm using those terms correctly. Anyway, so we were, so uh, there was, Alia Shawcat was uh, one of the actors. Um, and the other sort of like lead is Isaac Gonzalez. And we filmed, we were in the mud, you know, up to a, it's like, I didn't know Isaac Gonzalez. I'd seen Arrested Development. So I knew who Ali was and Ali was like the main part. And so you get halfway through filming and then that's when Isaac's character gets introduced. Yeah. So she just appears halfway through. And I'd already spent five days working with a whole group of other people. So she was like a late addition to the cast in terms of like when she enters the film. Not when she was cast. She was cast from the beginning. And she was, it's filmed chronologically. And it's filmed chronologically. It was an old, it was a, it was a, what do you call it? Um, improvised, is it? For sort of semi-improvised? It's improvised. You have like, it's written out scene by scene. Um, but then you just improvise what happens within those scenes and all the dialogue and then basically my character completely changed on day one it was one thing and then uh, due to the circumstances of how we were filming it my character completely changed and became sort of unrecognizable to what i'd signed on for and then yeah it became something else it became something different um and uh, uh i think maybe uh, better than what it was originally meant to be um you know and that was that's what's nice about doing that sort of thing but anyway so um uh, Isa turns up and I don't I don't know her I've not seen anything I, did, I hadn't seen Baby Driver right okay so here we are and then um, uh, she turns up she's very nice we got on very well uh, it's not my microphone it's not my um, it's not my phone um, Natalie is yeah um, so uh, I will move it there. so um, I'd not seen anything with her in and she turns up and it's this very sort of like uh, uh happy uh upbeat uh ray of sunshine <laughs> that turns up uh, because you know we live in with each other and working with each other and it's long for it's long shoot days and at the end of the day and we're all very vulnerable because we're filming uh 
an improvised film and none of us have kind of like done a lot of improv. So everyone's feeling kind of like a bit paranoid and a bit sort of like frayed around the edges. And there's like five or six of us that are all living in this kind of like accommodation. Um, and then I, halfway through, I turns up and uh, it's like, oh, wow. And we're all like, um, <laughs> it kind of like changes the uh, mood on the set and everyone's kind of like a little bit more. Yeah, she's, she, she was genuinely really nice, but I didn't know she was. She was like this kid that's just turned up and uh, <laughs> never heard of her, never seen her in anything. She just turns up and it's just like, oh, that's nice. And then at the end, I leave. <laughs> and it was, you know, I think the films turned out really well, but it was a fucking nightmare <laughs> to film. And then uh, a week later, uh, the Oscars are on. <laughs> Literally, we've been in a field <laughs> in the mud. I think we had a scene where we had to, uh, it's been cut from the film, where we had to erect a tent in the middle of the night. <laughs> like, uh, just, uh, me, uh, there was me and... There's four of us were erecting a tent, and um, and it's in the night, and so it's dark outside. It, do, you know, do you know what I mean? It was just sort of mm. like it was very like down to earth and kind of actually the sort of stuff that you don't really want to be doing in real life, let alone <laughs> having to do it over and over and over and over and over again for like like we were not we we all took like a uh, wage cut, you know, so <laughs> we're not. It's just, it's just the very low budget filmmaking and the circumstances of being out there are stretched. And then uh, the next week the Oscars were on and Isaac Gonzalez comes out and she's wearing like this yellow dress and she presents this award. And I'm like in my flat going, what? <laughs> I just... I was just in a field with her in Wales. What? Like we were, we were up to our ankles in sheep shit, and uh, and then all of a sudden she's presenting an Oscar, and that that was like that was, yeah, that was um, a real wake up call. Uh, there's nothing like working with a twenty year old and then seeing them present an Oscar the next week to uh, let you know that you, you fucked your life up. <laughs> oh no. Oh God. <laughs> I, should have, I should have started all this much earlier. Um, so, uh, the Oscars. There we go. I don't think anyone could be in any doubt that we've really covered that. <laughs> so what's the, what's the first rule of fan club, Nick? Tell your friends about fan club. What's the second rule of fan club? Please, for the love of God. Tell, tell your friends. Tell your friends. Tell We've had a bit of good news this week. Tell Nick. your friends about fan club. We've had some good news and some bad news. Bad news is? Bad news is we've still, we seem to have fallen off the Maltese chart. Two I weeks running. I don't understand what's happening with Malta. We've been quite high. What, we were rising. We were rising the charts. That's what it felt like to me. Every week, every week. We were like 80s, 70s, 60s. What was it last week in the hundred and nineties? Yeah, it's something we went really high, and then we're out completely. Or low? Isn't that low? High no, is quite... low. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're doing all right for a time in Malta, and uh, we always gave them a shout out, said hello. I guess it's the fickle, fickle finger. There, it's like the charts. It's like the singles charts. Yeah, they've they've seen something new, haven't they? Something something new has caught the eye, 
and they've gone. Oh, we've had enough now. We'll go and it's like, it's like the singles that. charts on uh, on Tinder. I imagine <laughs> uh, you've got so many singles to choose from. Why would you come back to a fan club? <laughs> something like that. Yeah, something like that. It's pretty good. Pretty yeah, it's, good. Like a, it's like a play on words. I mean, that's the least that we can do. Really. <laughs> it is the least. Um... <laughs> At the very least, is if you hear a joke, <laughs> try and make it. If you hear if you hear a potential joke, just try and make it. Yeah, uh, it doesn't matter. Even it's the effort that actually uh, again garners it's live. It's improvised. Effort, it's improvised effort. like this film. Yeah, it's the effort that garners the reward, isn't it? It's not the uh, it's not the actual payoff because yeah. the payoff is is fleeting. It's the journey, isn't it? It's the journey. That's, in it. that's how I approach comedy. Uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm not going there. It's miles away. Um, <laughs> I mean, see, this is, well, we're rocking and rolling now. See <laughs> the difference when I'm on the desk. So, <laughs> so, um, so what have you been? Are we, are we there yet? Oh, yeah, no, Malta. So well, Malta, well, Malta's, Malta's out. Malta, Malta's let us down big time. Uh, I'm actually gutted about that, I have to say. We were putting a lot of work. Uh, of all of the other countries on the planet that we could have been shouting out for this, you know. Yeah, we months, weren't. You know, yes, we weren't. It was we were solely focused on Malta. Yeah, and I feel like yeah, we've been completely uh, let down by them. I feel like what other podcasts cater to the Maltese charts as much as us? What I would I bet say, not many. What I would say is that um, I've been looking at holidays and stuff. I'm going to get my second jab next week, and I've been looking at holidays and stuff to see you know about travel and stuff like that. And Malta is one of the places you can travel to. And I wonder if Malta is one of the places you can travel out of also. You know? Yes, yeah, I need to turn out. And so, so, uh, so if everyone in Malta have all gone on holiday away from Malta, but they're still listening to their regular podcasts, Yes. Do you see where I'm going with this? I see where you're going. The same amount of Maltese people are listening to fan club. It's just they've been dispersed all over the all over the the, the, the planet. So it's actually being diluted to other people's um, territories. Yeah, it's a different territory now, which is taking taking uh, taking credit. Yeah, I'm I'm as good as convinced that that's what's happened. I hope so. If and if you're convinced. listening now in Malta. And you're one of the big fans who listens every week and you're going, this is crazy. What's going on? Tell your friends, your local friends. Yeah. Tell them to come back from holiday immediately. Put on uh, uh, the, the radio or the internet. Well, I would say to tell your friends, your local friends. But what I would say is if you're, if you're, on holi- if you're from Malta and you're on holiday and you're listening and you're, I don't know, bumping up... Uh, uh, Norway's listenership, for instance, sure. then phone up someone from Malta. Doesn't matter if they're in or listening, and just get them to switch it on, right? Yeah. So that will count as a that will count as a listen. as your listen that you right? would have had. Because what you've done selfishly is that you've left your house for the first time in what feels like years and is actually years. Uh, but uh, but what you haven't done is you haven't thought about you know the, the knock on effect, the butterfly effect, yeah, exactly. and that is that that Malta has plummeted down the charts and it's not even in the top 200 now but maybe this answers what's happened all exactly. the way in maybe a lot of Malta, Maltese re- residents have decided to take their first holiday to Romania Romania because now we are 167 just kissing the top 200 more than kissing got our tongue right down it uh and we've uh, hit the heady heights of 167 on the Romanian charts. Yeah, well done. Well done, Romania. 
pleased to have you here. Pleased for you to join in at the clubhouse. Welcome to the clubhouse. Um, well, we that's, uh, let us know if what's you that are. Noise? What's that noise? What's that noise? Drum roll. No, it was us letting down, letting down the rope ladder from the uh, clubhouse treehouse <laughs> so that, um, to let all the residents of uh, Romania up. Yeah, that's nice. To, to join, the, join the gang. Uh, we had a message here. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, just... If you've got any fan mail, just, um, you know. And if you're but, listening in Romania... Send us an email at fanclub at foobarradio.com and let us know where your where your email. In fact, if you're from anywhere that isn't the UK, send us an email and let us know where you're listening. Where you're listening and why you're listening and how you found out about us <laughs> and what on earth is going on in your life that we have taken uh, up two hours of your working week. Um, some people just skip to the second hour. <laughs> and some people don't even bother. Uh, but wh- however you do yours, make your fan club a fun club. <laughs> and that is fanclub at foobarradio.com. Keep those, keep those <laughs> messages, keep those messages rolling in. Do you know that there's a difference between terror at the opera uh, and... Uh, the Phantom of the Opera by Dario Argento. Oh no, I didn't know there was a Phantom of the Opera. Terror at the Opera is just opera, right? As well. Yeah, but I've got an Arrow release that's called Terror at the Opera, and it made oh. me think that he'd done another film called Opera. Like he'd done three movies about opera. But and do you know what? He actually directed. Is it Verdi's Macbeth? Oh no, he might have done Dario. I think in opera. They're doing a production of Macbeth, aren't they? That's directed by... I get it could be, yeah, could be. Whoever. But, um, but, in, uh, it, but he actually did a... Uh, Dario Argento actually directed a production of um, Macbeth, uh, the opera. It was, I think it was for, for the stage rather than as a Yeah, Yeah, a I, think it's record, I think it's recorded on DVD, but it was like a theatrical uh, production. Um, so there's something I didn't know last week that I now know this week. Uh, if you've got any fun facts, keep them rolling in, like I say. So Dario Argento is like starring in a movie, isn't he, as well? He is in, is it gonna, I think it's a Gaspar Noé film, like the French movie director, and he's in one of his new movies. But I'm not, I'm not that big a fan of his films. So it's kind of interesting that they've cast Dario Argento in it. You're not as a big a, fan of who, Gaspar Noé? Yeah, he thinks that Irreversible. And oh right, exactly. So, like, grueling movies. Grueling movies. Well, what have you? Uh, let's cut the bullshit. We've got three minutes. What have you been a fan of this week, Nathaniel? Well, I've seen a few things. I think the thing I've been most a fan of is a dark thing, which was the Sons of Sam documentary that was on Netflix about the son of Sam and a guy who's called Maury Terry, who's this guy who's essentially obsessed with the case and has been following it. And he's kind of created this narrative, which is is kind of believable. It's kind of a slightly more far-fetched narrative, but it, it all kind of falls into place. Except at the end of it, you're just never really sure whether any of it's actually happened. He built up this sort of kind of completely circumstantial evidence. But that, that's what it is. There's lots of very odd things happening around it that connects all the Son of Sam killings to all the Manson family killings and things. And it's just really sort of fascinating, like... 
you sort of go, oh, I didn't know any of this. But at the end of it, you kind of left with this idea like, is any of it actually true? Or has he just become so obsessed he's created this narrative? He's, he's, put, a, he's put another layer on top of it. He's connected Son of Sam to... Son of Sam to... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Manson family. Essentially, it's all like um, it's all kind of satanic cults is the idea behind it, and it's basically the same one um, that are sort of responsible for both. It's people who are part of these satanic cults, but it's really sort of fascinating doc. But you, but you get to the end of it and you think that's all bullshit. No, it's kind of you're left with the question mark of it, where you go. I mean, what he's saying doesn't seem unbelievable. And he has got um, circumstantial evidence. Like, it's like, oh, that's interesting. That seems weird. And it's also like what, what I think is true is that once the New York Police Department find a suspect and they've gone, great, and this guy has uh, admitted it, they kind of just completely check out. So when he's bringing forward new evidence saying, oh, this is probably worth investigating, they're like, no, 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 because we've got someone. And we don't want to reopen a case based on this. So none of this stuff's ever really investigated. It's only really investigated by amateurs. But he's this kind of, you know, he's a investigative journalist for a paper who's looking into all this stuff. So as like a journalist, he's not like he's not like a crank necessarily, and he's finding out all this stuff which seems very, you know, lots of things that are weird coincidences, if not true. But so at the a, end of the day, it could be a weird coincidence. So it's a bit like a Dario Argento film, really, in the sense that it's a regular guy with a job, or girl, um, and they are uh, solve, trying to solve a case, yeah, right? exactly, yeah, exactly. So they're, so they're like, they're not a police officer, they're a journalist, they're like piecing together the case. Because whenever you see that in something, like Murder, She Wrote, you're a novelist, what the fuck are you doing? Let the police yeah. handle this. <laughs> then you realise it's just Tom Bosley and you go, I'll give you a hand. Right, give yeah. you a hand. That's all the, the man hours you've got. How many episodes was Tom Bosley in? Oh, I don't know. It seems like, look, he's, isn't he Cabot Cove? So if it's set in the place where she lives, I think he's in those ones. But if she's off somewhere on holiday somewhere, he's probably not in those ones. I, got, I felt like she was always on holiday. Yeah, so did I. I like I. I've not watched it. Like, have you seen season three of Murder (laughs) She Wrote yet? I've not like watched it like that. I dipped in and out, and I I must have seen like the beginning of an episode because I remember the theme tune and stuff. But like, it it it's not like I just felt like she was always on one endless book tour. Yeah. Um, But uh, Tom Bosley was there, and then after that, what he got Father Dowling off of the success off the success of. His bit part in uh, Murder, She Wrote. And Happy Days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <clears throat> he was David the Gnome as well. Yeah, yeah, he was. So uh, why do we know that much about fucking <laughs> Tom, Tom fucking Bosley? But he did Father Dowling. That must have been like in the 90s, right? After Murder, yeah, She Wrote. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Murder, She Wrote is one of those shows where I couldn't really tell you how long it ran for in reality. It's, it might be one of those things that ran for three years, but I think it went on for like 20 years or something. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you when it started, when it ended, but that's like Columbo as well, because Columbo just ran and ran and ran. And I got the feeling that those films that they made later, those TV movies that they made later, um, you know, uh, they, didn't really, uh, they didn't really count. Do you know what I mean? But mm. they did. They did. Tom Bosley was in 19 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. His character was Chef, Sheriff 
Amos, Amos Tupper. Sheriff Amos Tupper. He, he ran, ran from, from 1984 to 1997. Wow. Wow. But did they take any time off? Because, you know... That could be. What's that? Could... Oh, yeah, no, that's 13 years, isn't it? Yeah, God, crikey. Because yeah, you could they could say... have had a break in between. Because, like, you know, you could say something like Red Dwarf ran from 1987 to 2021, but they took 20 years off in the middle. Yeah. That's what that was with Columbo, I think, wasn't it? I think they did. I think they ran in the seventies and the nineties. I think. Well, it's like um, he did. Uh, he did like the sixties and seventies episodes, yeah, which mm. was the biggest thing in town. Like Columbo was huge, and then he had like a film career, and then his hair went grey, and he did some Columbo episodes where he had grey hair, and I guess they were like, "Oh, you look too old with grey hair," so he dyed his hair the same colour that Paul McCartney dyed his hair, jet <laughs> jet chestnut. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they dyed their hair jet chestnut and uh, you go wow look at that it's not brown <laughs> no it really isn't it doesn't look like a real color it's not which is weird because it's trying to make you look younger but it's not it's never like that's not a real one paul no McCart- one has no one has that shape paul, McCart- paul mccartney in the 90s late 90s when he had gray hair looked great and yeah. when in the 2000s was it or in the early 90s maybe when he went jet chestnut it was like oh my god yeah. do you remember looked, I'll enough, another weird one like that is roger moore's hair in a view to a kill where he's almost got like ginger hair and you go that's gone wrong it's definitely not what it's supposed to look like roger he does have ginger hair i don't think he's having or maybe it's in that one particularly maybe it's it's gone for a bright orange roger moore is ginger I think of him as having a darker kind of brown hair, but the, maybe. You know, he made that the man with the ginger pubes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the title sequence. You had to have seen it to believe it. Um, got to we play need to play a song. Got to yeah. play a song. Both agree. These, uh, look, we, I, guess, I guess in a way we are empaths. <laughs> Here we go. and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. All right, we're back. Are we back? We're back. Am I loud enough? You're loud enough. I'm loud. I'm proud. I'm loud. It's important to say it twice. Uh, Change my microphone because it was cutting out um, like uh, like a a five-year-old at nursery school. Um, You know, because they have scissors and paper and stuff to do <laughs> like you know it's live so things uh, happen things happen we just got to roll with the flow that's the thing what did i see the other day i saw a film and it was like they said you just gotta stay calm as ice and <laughs> um, <laughs> And I can't remember what film it was. Hang on, I'll get my I'll get my phone and I'll. Um, you got to say calm as I. It's just kind of like not only did the writer write that, but everyone on set has heard it. Everyone on set has has heard it, and they've gone, yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it was this Sean Bean film called Cash. I don't think I know Cash. Oh no, maybe it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was. Oh, my God. So what have I been a fan of this week? Go on, ask me. What have you been a fan of this week, Nick? 
Not a lot, because I haven't had a lot of time to watch stuff this week. But um, last week I watched, um, I went back to see my uh, parents. Um, this is quiet. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, of time, I, wa- I wanted to watch some more Sean Bean stuff. So we watched Ronin. Yeah. Um, and then I watched this film, uh, Amazon Prime is basically it's uh like a like a fucking it's like a it's like a treasure trove of films that you think might the whole thing about it is that they're trying to trick you into watching stuff all the stuff that's free on amazon prime is just all like it's not just shit it's like a special type of shit <laughs> that you know it, it's all got like four and a half stars on amazon and then you look at it and then you realize that it's like 11 percent fresh on uh, rotten tomatoes <laughs> and i watched this film this sean bean film called cash where the s is a dollar bill um, ah, that rings a bell and it stars uh, sean bean mm-hmm. in the dual role of uh, criminal twins one of them's oh, locked nice. up one of them's locked up and the other one's on the outside trying to do his uh, uh, bidding. Um, and uh, it also stars fucking Chris Hemsworth in a pre-Thor role. Oh, from that sort of era, 2007? Well, I think, it was, I, think it was I think this film came out in 2010, but that means that I reckon it was probably filmed about four years beforehand. Because I, I imagine Chris Hemsworth has always been in shape. Yeah, but there's yeah. a different kind of shape that you get into once you are a uh, Marvel superhero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's sort of like great. He's got big arms, but he's like uh, a bit like Stallone in the first Rocky, where he's sort of like beefy, right? Um, he's got sort of like a little bit of like uh, like um, he's got. A sl- I mean, I'm not saying nothing, right? But he's got a slightly uh, chubbier. He's got a bit of baby fat on him, and he's mm-hmm. uh, but he's got these huge arms, but they're not that well defined. And if he made that after Thor or in between Thors, I think that's impossible. So I reckon it was. It looks like it was made mid to to late 2000s, but right. not part of the. I think it was the first film he made when he got to Hollywood. So you think he was sat on a shelf and then Thor came out and someone said, we might be able to make a bit of money on video if we stick Hemsworth's name on the cover of a video or a DVD. Well, they don't. I think they could have got away with saying starring Chris Hemsworth, but they don't. It stars Sean Bean, who's got a big name. And on some posters, Chris Hemsworth is second. It's like under the title. And some he's sort of like a lot smaller on the... Uh, post it's it's sort of yeah anyway so this this film called cash and it is um uh now um it is shit but it is uh it's sort of it's about a gangster who's like obsessed with money sean bean and he kind of like takes these it's about so Sean Bean plays this bad guy who steals a load of money and then gets arrested and he hides the money. And then Chris Hemsworth finds the money, uh, takes it home to his wife and they start spending it. And then Sean Bean tells his identical twin brother to go and hunt it down while he's in prison. So Sean Bean 
goes out and hunts down these two people and then he basically keeps them in house arrest and um they it's like dumb and dumber where they've got a load of ious <laughs> and there's this one scene where they're basically they've got like one of those old-fashioned uh tax machines with like the paper yeah. and there's this one scene that goes on for ages where they're going through their receipts and she's adding up like what they owe him but it goes on for like like four minutes or something like that which is like an impossible it's only a 90 minute film you know what i mean yeah. and four minutes of that is this uh, uh woman sat at a table with sean bean as they go through their receipts and she keeps like adding them up it's like it's so um it's so yeah like it's undeliberately bad but at the same time the humor in it and it's funny and it's kind of like the humour is deliberate and it's right. and Sean Bean puts in a good performance. Uh, I was saying beforehand, you know, oh, it's got Chris Hemsworth in and my mum was like, who's Chris Hemsworth? And I was like, oh, he plays Thor. He's kind of like this big kind of like muscly guy, but he's really charismatic and he's got a real good um, sense for comedy. And then we watched it and it's kind of like, he is not charismatic and he, <laughs> but he's got this awful haircut which is kind of like the sort of haircut that you would give um a five-year-old boy uh and you, what if you do it yourself because you just uh need something that's not going to get really messy and tangled up in stuff and <laughs> it's, it's, it's like and it's all brushed forward he looks like um yeah he looks like a child uh with huge beefy it's just this <laughs> And, and so it's kind of like, where did, did anybody watch this and think, yeah, we'll give him, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like his improvement in what must be a few, either yeah. one or two years or straight away. Like the improvement that like, is, is night and day, you know, like he's, he's, I just bigged him up and then we watch it and you go, oh yeah, well, obviously this is an early one. Um, but Sean Bean is good. The film is like, it's, it's sort of incompetent like the way it's been made but so it's obviously had like a really low budget but um i laughed all the way through it sometimes at the film but sometimes with the film and i would say <laughs> more often than not with the film it was and it's got it's really quirky because this guy's really obsessed with money and so they give him kind of like um this this character quirk where he's sort of like obsessed with you know he's he gets a hotel he gets a motel room for seven days but he only stays in it for six and so he's sort of like haggling with the guy that um runs the motel to get like 50 quid off him um even though he's got a suitcase that's filled with millions uh yeah it's sort of all oh, right so it's on amazon prime i can't i i enjoyed it do you know what i mean i mm. it's not it's not well made and some of the acting is all over the place. Sean Bean is good, but it's just weird. It's just really weird. He plays these two parts, and you just think he shouldn't have played two parts. Yeah. Um, but um, it was uh, critically, but all crit all like technical criticism aside, it was a very badly made film that was incredibly entertaining. Um, yeah. So and maybe I at some level there was something about that idea, like on a script level that attracted people to it and were like, yeah, this is going to be good. I think on a script level, it's a Coen Brothers type film. Yeah. The execution of it is a direct to TV, um, you know, uh, problem of the week kind of yeah. 
movie it's sort of it's got tv production values but they're aiming to do kind of like a Karen brother-esque film where it's like this money keeps like changing hands um so i think it had sort of like some big aspirations and it didn't quite it, well, it didn't, i thought that you could do a really brilliant remake of it you just need to push the comedy a little bit and, mm. and push the violence because it was violent i mean it was it was it was yeah it was weird anyway so so then the next night we watched um this is where karma's ice comes from which is absolutely insane it was a film starring uh anthony hopkins josh duhamel what's it called i'm about to say okay stars josh duhamel from the transformers movies um al pacino and didn't he, wasn't he in um, Win a Date with Tad Hamilton or something? Mm. I think he was Tad Hamilton and Topher Grace was uh, like the other guy. So it's Josh Duhamel with Academy Award winner Al Pacino and Academy Award winner Anthony Hopkins in the movie Misconduct. And it also <laughs> stars, uh, what's her name? Uh, Marlon Ackerman, Alice Eve, uh, oh, yeah, Julia Stiles. It's like this really crazy film. So whereas, um, whereas um, uh, Cash was this uh, badly made little gem, really, it's like it is deliberately entertaining and accidentally entertaining. And Sean Bean is great. It's just this really good deadpan performance oh. where you don't realize it's meant to be funny until there's a bit that's just funny and then you go oh, i guess it i guess you know i just think that some of that stuff should have been highlighted yeah um, i guess you would see if you see a film where a film from that era an american movie where sean bean is the star you probably don't have a great deal of faith in it as like ah, okay i don't know what it's gonna be like it, it depends how, um, I mean, it would maybe be around the same time he did the Hitcher remake. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Game of Thrones. It was that around then? I think it, was, it feels like it's slightly before Game of Thrones, but right. it, was def- it was definitely after Lord of the Rings. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know. It was, anyway, but so this misconduct film um, is like, it's not the opposite. It is badly made. It gets to a point in misconduct where you feel like they've just stopped trying, where at first it's kind of like all of these kind of like flashy camera setups and they're actually trying to make a film and at the end it's like single camera setups where they haven't got coverage or anything it's just him talking on a phone and they've just shot him by a phone and they've just given up um and it's got al pacino in it who's doing kind of like this weird terrible al pacino thing and anthony hopkins it's kind of like it's like when you i think we talked about it maybe recently maybe last week when we talked about like copland and when stallone and mm. de niro were on screen together for the first time you go this is really special well do you know what it's like it's like righteous kill and heat so heat was kind of like oh my god al pacino and robert de niro on screen for the first time yeah you know together and then Righteous Kill came out 15 years later and it was just, ah, oh, just put, put them both in a film together now, isn't it? And, <laughs> you know, they both look bad and they're not like, acting, the plot is like, doesn't work. And it's like, um, 
And it's like that, really, where you've got Anthony Hopkins and Al Pacino. Uh, I guess uh, Josh Duhamel, or whatever his name is, um, I guess he was in Transformers and Anthony Hopkins was in some Transformers and maybe they kind of like were doing each other like a favour or... yeah. It's just this weird film that is kind of absolutely rubbish on every level. Um, and not even so bad that it's enjoyable, just a total waste of time. And I guess, I mean, it's like, what was that film that I saw? Um, the uh, Secret to Happiness? The Success to Happiness? Shortcut to Happiness, starring... Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins. Oh yeah, I don't think you've spoken about that on here. Did I not? It's on Amazon Prime, and it is the, it's based on The Devil and Daniel Webster. It's called The Shortcut to Happiness. It's got one of the most forgetful titles where um, uh, I keep forgetting what it's called. You know, and <laughs> um, and it's got Jennifer Love Hewitt. I saw the cast. It was like Alec Baldwin, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Anthony Hopkins, Dan Aykroyd, uh, Amy Poehler. Um, you know, there's, there's more people in it, and it's kind of like, wow, what an incredibly great cast that you've got. And then it's directed by Alec Baldwin, but he changed his name, and it's it's just so bad. The film is so bad, uh, and Anthony Hopkins obviously did it for Alec Baldwin because um, they were in the Edge together, and they're obviously friends. Oh yeah, it's just it's terrible. It's one of the, that was enjoyable because that like, every scene in that is like a jaw dropping piece of incompetence whereas um i kind of misconduct is like it's it's boring and on top of that it's uh incompetent you can't even you can't even enjoy and revel in its shittiness it's just shit so um i don't recommend that there's a film i mean it's easier i mean i i rarely see films like that where i think it's from the modern era that, that feel that incompetent almost i always think they've kind of outgrown that stuff but you know i do see a lot of films from like the 60s and 70s where i do go wow this was like there's a really great peter cushing film called island of terror and it's definitely an exercise in them breaching 85 minutes like the, it's like at the start they've gone what we need to do is reach uh, 85 minutes and that's a feature and how they stretch out this plot and scenes go on forever, even though it's like, well, cut there, surely. They just kind of carry on a bit. It, that's, it, um, that's like Shortcut to Happiness. Shortcut to Happiness is like, it's this vanity project that I think that he made in, Alec Baldwin made in 2003, and uh, then the production company went bankrupt. And then I guess another company came along and bought the assets, and rather than put any money into editing the raw footage, they've just done an assembly of it. And they've used every single free bit of music on iMovie. They've used every single free kind of like um, segue uh, footage. You know, like footage of... Um, uh, time-lapse footage of clouds coming into New York and then going away again. And it's yes. kind of like... A, and. Uh, uh, and it's all glossy and you know, these incre- incredible overhead shots of New York and it's all really glossy but the film that it is linking you know in between scenes of none of the scenes are glossy it's terrible and they're often like huge one take shots which is either Alec Baldwin couldn't be bothered to sort of like film multiple angles 
and he was just like we'll just let the acting do it it'll be like theater where we've got a shot on a scene that lasts five minutes or it's the fact that he wasn't in the edit someone assembled it and they literally were just taking a single take from a scene and rather than editing it in with all the other takes and shots and angles they just was like that's take one we'll use that it's them walking from a car to a building with no cuts at all just the camera following them and that's the scene and it can't be any shorter because there's no edits in it it's it's absolutely it's just it's, uh, and by the end of it they've run out of money and um they're filming in kind of like a school gym uh that's got like a set built in it and then they keep going to these glossy sort of flashy shots of new york being all timeless it's absolutely crazy this film um uh, I think you should watch it, and we should uh, we should do something with it. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's great. Anyway, shortcuts of happiness. It's out there on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Let's, let's do some fan mail, shall we? You bet your life. I bet my life. Bloody hell! Well, where are we? Um, fan mail. Oh, hey Nick and Nat, how are you doing, boys? I've recently watched The Revenant, and I loved it. Have you watched it? What is your opinion on it? Thanks, Tom. I've never seen it, you? I've never seen it. I keep meaning to watch it. It's never really grabbed me. Exactly. It's always there, and it's always kind of like, hey, (laughs) Revenant. I I, I was even at the... I think I was at the BAFTAs when Leonardo DiCaprio won a BAFTA for the Revenant. And I'm saying that as well. I don't think it's bad. Yeah. It's just never grabbed me. It's never been like, I'll watch that tonight. I'm always scrolling through it, and I go... Right, that's that's my third backup. Yeah, that's safe. That's safe. I could oh, always course, watch a Revenant. Of course, I watched a Revenant, but let's see if there's something that I want to watch on. You know? <laughs> well, let's see if there's something that's probably much worse first. Yeah, well, let's watch Shortcuts <laughs> of Happiness, Cast, Cash, and Misconduct. Um, and then I'll watch a Revenant, maybe. Yeah, if time. Not, not, if it's not too late. It hasn't really blown my skirt up. So, hello, boys. What's up? I'm struggling to find films like Midsummer. Have you got any suggestions? Cheers, Kieran. Um, uh, the Wicker Man. The Wicker Man. What's the, what's the Piers Haggard film again? Blood and Satan's Claw. Blood and Satan's Claw is fucking incredible. I prefer it to The Wicker Man. I think um, it is a great film. And then you got Witchfinder General. You're good on all of this. Yeah, stuff. Uh, I'd recommend um, City of the Dead, which is also known as Horror Hotel. I would recommend... Oh, recently, I guess something that's got in similar vein is a new Ben Wheatley film, In the Earth. Uh, it's got a similar thing. I guess Field in England as well, the other Ben Wheatley film. And Kill List. Kill List, I guess, is the most most Kill, like that. That's Kill the List. most. Kill List is very much like The Wicker Man. And, of course, there's, uh, there's uh, the, with The Wicker Man as well. The, the yeah, the remake, um, which is a different bagger. Mm. I don't. I well, I do. I do dislike the remake of The Wicker Man, but I do think it is trying to be a comedy. I think it's like, I think it's a failed comedy rather than it's something that's like it's crazy. They didn't even know what they were doing. It's is like it... they knew what they were doing. They just did it in a way that's made it not successful. I think maybe they, he wasn't in the edit or something. Yeah. It's, it's Neil Lebute, right? Yeah. I think he's done a similar thing to um, uh, fucking Gus Van Sant with Psycho, where he's gone, you can't touch the original, so I'm going to do something. I think Gus Van Sant was deliberately trying to point out 
what a piece of genius the original film was and how you shouldn't touch it. And in doing a shot for shot remake and changing certain things like making it in color, putting Vince Vaughn as the lead, you know, um, making it a little bit more explicit, um, doing certain things, he's literally pointing out to everyone you shouldn't remake classics because they're classics for a reason. I think there's something, I think it's I think, I think I think it is. And I think a lot of the criticism both those films got is kind of a misunderstanding of what they're trying the to do. I don't think I don't think The Wicker Man is a good movie, but I think given that it's that sort of the way people talk about it now suggests that it's made by maniacs and it's like no I think it's it's, or, it's a failed experiment or idiots. Yeah. Like people like, that people people just assume the worst in other people and yeah, just yeah, think, exactly. These guys were idiots and they didn't know how to make a film and you go no 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 no. Um uh, you know uh if uh you had um uh, what's his face that made Port of Call, New Orleans, uh, Bad Lieutenant? Oh yeah, uh, um, Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog. So if you had like Werner Herzog in charge of it with Nicolas Cage in it, and it's like another crazy sort of Nicolas Cage performance, great, brilliant. But um, they didn't, they didn't do that anyway. Um, right, so our guest is in the waiting room. So let's play a song and go and get her. Yeah. Thanks for your fan mail. Keep it coming in. Yeah. Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. Okay, uh, and, and we're back. We're back. Uh, we're back live. We're not live. We're pre-recorded on Wednesday, and uh, we are in the studio. We're not in the studio. I'm in my uh, office, and Nathaniel is in his washroom, and uh, we are now uh, joined uh, by uh, comedy writer uh, Sarah Gibbs, who is promoting her new memoir, Drama Queen, which is out in bookshops. And it's not just bookshops anymore, it's the whole of the internet. You can get it everywhere now. Uh, Sarah, hello. Welcome to Fan Club. Hey, nice to, nice. That's the most awkward start ever. That was the most autistic thing ever. Nice to meet. Uh, <laughs> I mean, on this show, you cannot be less professional than the hosts. You can't. You can't. I thought you it's were impossible. criticizing. I thought you were criticizing me. Um, <laughs> oh, that was me. Like, hello. <laughs> so, hello. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Thank you so much for having me is what I was trying to say in the middle of saying hello and it came out in a big old word jumble. Yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. Lovely way of breaking the ice. Um, <laughs> so how, how old are you, Sarah? I'm 33. And you've written your very first memoir. I know. I, I always thought a memoir was something you did when you were like on your deathbed, but apparently not, um, hopefully. So. <laughs> how, did, how did that come about? Um, well... Honestly, when I first got my diagnosis, um, I was just really, really excited to talk about it all the time. That's my autism diagnosis. So mm -hmm. um, I, I'm just assuming that people know what I'm talking about, which they don't. Um, so the book is about growing up undiagnosed autistic um, in a weird, wacky new age community as well. So um, yeah, I just really wanted to talk about it all the time. It was just all I wanted to talk about. And I was, that happens to a lot of autistic people when they're first diagnosed, we tend to fixate and get obsessed and really get interested in things. And autism tends to be one of those special interests. Um, so yeah, I was just trying to find how I wanted to write about it. I knew I wanted to write something funny, um, because I felt like 
I don't know, a lot of the time when people talk about disability, they talk about it in terms of tragedy and, um, you know, lamenting it. And, and that's not how I felt about it at all. And I wanted, I just wanted to show that we're people and we can laugh at ourselves. Um, but um, it was suggested to me by other people that um, my story was interesting. Um, and I sort of resisted that for a while because I'm not on my deathbed, I hope. Um, but uh, I'm autistic, so I, I constantly think I'm on my deathbed. That's a <laughs> big old hypochondriac. But um, yeah, I, I took it to Headline, my publisher, and I met my editor, Sarah, who was just so wonderful. And I just felt like it would be in really safe hands with her. And so... Yeah, never looked back. Just tried not to think too hard about what I was doing. That is interesting because in your book, it's more that your diagnosis is kind of a positive, isn't mm. it? It sort of ends up being like a thing that you can kind of retrospectively explain things that were previously things that you could see as like negative traits. And yet it is it is something when you find something out, I guess it's that uh, information as power, right? You can mm. retrospectively so apply it, it to your life. So is it sort of like a plot twist where when you look back at everything, uh, everything falls into place and it sort of makes more sense? That's exactly how I describe it, like a plot twist. I, I sometimes say that it's like the bit in Bruce in uh, Sixth Sense when Bruce Willis finds out he's been dead all along. So that's what spoiler. I was going to say. Sorry. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. To anyone who hasn't seen that film yet, grow up. It came out like 10 years ago. <laughs> 20 years ago. Um, how, how old am I? Oh, my God. That's, uh, yeah, it's been a long time. Um, however, however old you are, uh, we're older. <laughs> well, that is comforting. Um, yeah, it did. It felt like, yeah, suddenly everything made sense. And, you know, it it's my neurotype. So it forms the basis of who I am. So it's not, you know, people are like, oh, don't go using it as an excuse for everything. It's like, well, it is everything. It is like, that's that's what it is. It's, it shapes who I am. So, yeah, I, I was looking at all my memories and sort of, it was like turning them over and seeing them much more clearly. And like, oh, there's a whole picture on the other side that I didn't know about. Yeah. So was the writing process uh, like also a process of discovery or had you kind of like thought it all through and then you wrote the book I think I thought I'd thought it all through um actually when I started writing the book I was like how am I going to get a book out of this I'm 33 and nothing's really happened to me um and yeah it took a long time to uh, like I guess tap into traumatic memories that I probably kept buried for a long time and there were things in the book that I think were probably the first time I'd even admitted them out loud to myself let alone to anyone else so like it was like telling the world for the first time well I say the world it was sort of a blank page at that point I was trying not to think about anyone reading it but it was very confessional and yeah sort of like condensing a decade of therapy into a year and a half of writing I think one of the things I, I thought was interesting about it I, I feel like you know I feel like I'm trying to keep ahead always try and think I'm on the right page with things the other thing reading it it, it felt like how little I know about autism mm -hmm. as well. And I re it was only in reading it that I realised how little I did know. And even things where I think I probably am clumsy with talking about it because I don't know enough. And there's things you mention kind of offhandly and, and things like when you're talking about, initially people were talking at a time when you were diagnosed about Asperger's and you mentioned just casually that that's not something people use mm. at all anymore and it's not something I, it's like oh i didn't know that i didn't know that's something from the past now and we don't really talk about it in those terms 
So some people do still use it because it was their original diagnosis. And there are some diagnostic manuals, I think, that still use it, but it's being phased out um, because the model of how people are looking at autism is sort of changing. I think when people think about autism, they think it's like this left-right spectrum, like a bit quirky to severe or tragic. Um, and that's not really how it actually is at all. Um, so somebody, oh, someone's in trouble. Is that, it's me, I think. Is that, I think it's coming. Is that you, Nathaniel? It's, 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 my, it's on my microphone, but I think I'm all right. I think I'm all right. They're not coming for you? No. Okay, um, good. Yeah, um, I was thinking, so yeah, it's, it's sort of... It, I think I thought before I was diagnosed it was a left to right spectrum. And when I first diagnosed, I was like, oh, I'm high functioning because that's what my doctors told me. And that's what I thought you said. And the minute I said that, people were like, oh, ableist. I was like, what? What do you mean ableist? How can I be ableist? I, I'm one of you. I don't understand. And it took me a while of being sort of immersed in the community to understand the language. Like, it's really thorny and really tricky. There are some people who really feel strongly about keeping their diagnosis of Asperger's and there are other people who feel really strongly that it it's it's problematic for a number of reasons I'll, I'll get into the whole Nazi links in a bit but um um yeah it's so so I guess when you think about an autistic person it's it's not mild to severe it's sort of we all have different sliders like in a recording studio and you know they're all the same traits but some are turned up to different levels and they can change over time so there might be days where I actually can't talk at all um where I just completely lose my language and then there'll be other days where I uh, you can't stop me talking um there might be days where I am you know able to do quite a lot and days where I couldn't look after myself if I tried so um you know how someone functions can really change over time and so these sort of high and low functioning Asperger's to you know severe autism labels don't really help we, we tend to talk now in terms of support needs is the latest language but um Asperger's in particular used to refer I believe to people with an IQ over 70 who are autistic so what what's meant by that is people who don't have a comorbid learning dis uh, d disability or something something like that so um I think the problem, as I understand it, and I might be wrong about this, but how the story has been told to me, and I haven't looked into this, so um, you know, disclaimer is that Hans Asperger used that model to differentiate between the kids who were like him and clever and got to live and the kids who didn't. Um, which is, you know, obviously uh, not something that, you know, I'm Jewish and so like, I don't really want to say I have Asperger's and you know, with knowing the context of it. And also, um, it sort of feels like uh, not a very, like like you're not expressing solidarity, like you're trying to differentiate yourself from those other autistics. And I, that sure. doesn't sit Got well it. with me. No, absolutely. And I think even that, it's that, I guess what it brings to mind is just that idea that these things are constantly changing and mm. it's more just about asking questions or asking what, what other people want or what you want or what you want from from the conversation or how you are. Yeah, totally. I think that's the safest thing to do. Like, I think people get spooked with disability. They're scared of saying the wrong thing. And it's totally fine to ask, what language do you prefer? Because you might talk to one autistic person and they say, no, no, I'm a person with autism. And you might talk to another autistic person like me, and I prefer to say I'm autistic. And so you just don't know until you ask someone. And I think people like being asked because, you yeah. know, it's, it's like sort of asking how to pronounce someone's name the first time you meet them instead of getting it wrong for 10 years not talking to anyone in particular, <laughs> all, all my friends and family. <laughs> and me. 
<laughs> no, no, you got it right. You, you got it right first time. Yeah, yeah. But you are. That was that was one of the bits because I I I, uh, I had it as an audio book. I found that easier to. Uh, it's just easier than taking that time aside to read it. But there's a, there's even a section in your book where you talk about the pronunciation of your name, and I remember thinking, well, how's that when it's written? Because <laughs> it is just in the book. You could still be reading it as Sarah, even though it is Sarah. Mm. Yeah, I, I I don't think I explained that very well. People read it and they're like, after reading your book, I now know it's Sarah. I was like, did I did I write that wrong? <laughs> if you're saying it's pronounced Sarah, but it's just written the same, you just say, oh yeah, well I guess how would I know unless I I heard you say it? Um, I wrote it like ah, like like you're screaming, and then uh, like you're really fed up um, in the book. I don't know how. Um, how I would spell that A R R R G H probably, um, and just uh, with the U and uh, but I don't think that actually is helpful at all. Um, no. I think I was trying to be funny and uh, forgot to be helpful. No, when I was a kid, if it didn't have an H at the end, it was always Sarah. But then the older I get, I just start meeting Sarahs who spell it like that. They ruin sister. it for the rest of us. I my, know. My I sister's know. my sister's a Sarah with an H, and every time I see a Sarah without an H. I get confused, so I just say <laughs> Sarah because I think if it was Sarah, it'd have an H on it, right? That's well, that was always my understanding. Yeah, sorry, it. sorry to Sarahs without an H, but um, uh, yeah, they're spoiling the party. Mm. So, talk us through when we when were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed. Uh, how old am I? Yeah, thirty-three. I just told you that um, I was diagnosed three years ago, um, just over three years ago in May, twenty eighteen. That's well. That's an incredible. That's incredibly recent for mm. someone. That's the, so talk us through sort of like the immediate changes from before and after. Oh, I don't know that. I don't know that much changed materially. I think I just started making um, better decisions for myself. Um, for a start, I stopped putting myself in situations where I found it hard to cope. Um, because I think before my diagnosis, it was like, why can't you just do this? And I would go into situations with a lot of optimism, like parties, for example. I would go to a party and think, I'll be fine this time. Like this time it'll be fine because I'm a normal person going to a normal party. And then I would find myself sort of sitting outside in the cold because it was you know just like the bbc radio talent party for example i found myself sitting by myself outside on the tables in the middle of winter because i couldn't remember how to get home i was so overwhelmed and i'd been so overwhelmed by the room and uh, you know i knew i was autistic at that stage um but you know that stuff would happen all the time so i think i tried to mitigate the situations that i put myself in like that um you know and also my relationships changed a lot i think you know my relationship with my mum changed she really started to understand me my relationships with my friends you know the ones who understood and were compassionate about it were really eager to um find out how they could be helpful and how they could um make things easier for me when we meet up um and they were really kind about it and also just appreciate my husband so much more because he's always done so much for me but i think i was like well that's just what husbands do for wives and it turns out no not everyone needs this kind of help um and he really is quite exceptional so yeah, a lot, lot more like psychological changes um, than anything. You know, I've still been doing my job and living my life. We've, we've never met, but I suspect we've got lots of friends in common. And in your book, you've had times when you started off as a performer and you've been in a band uh, and now you write comedy. 
were you ever tempted to kind of perform comedy as well? I was briefly tempted. Um, and then I remember we had this open mic night that I organized with some friends and I, I wasn't going to perform on it. But I think just before I stood up on stage just to see what it would feel like with nobody in the room. I stood at the mic and I thought, I just instantly felt like I was going to have a panic attack just being there. It was like, this is horrible. I don't know how you guys do it. It was just, I just suddenly felt like I was going to freeze up and, you know, not that I had anything to say. It was just to test out the feeling really. I did write five minutes and then thought, no, it's, I think the whole lifestyle would be too much for me. The late nights and the crowds and the expectation to socialize (laughs) and all of that. It's just not designed for someone like me. So you're imagining being a successful comedian, right? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't tend to fantasise about being unsuccessful. (laughs) No, no. It's just when you say crowds, it's, um, yeah, I imagine that's brilliant. Um, (laughs) The whole stadium would just be... (laughs) (laughs) The O2 O2 Arena. Um, Yeah, so so you've never performed as a stand-up? No, never. And but you you now make a living as a a comedy writer, and you've written for various uh, TV shows and radio shows. I have, yeah, yeah. I've been very, very lucky. Um, and it's so- interest. It's interesting that it seems to have happened because that was it. It's happened in this quite short amount of time as well. So you you weren't doing that until was it late twenties, early thirties as well. So it was almost like a complete career change. Yeah, I think um, I just saw on Facebook, it came up today that I got my first credit, I think, five years ago today. So it's a bit of an anniversary. Terrific. So that's really, so that's quite amazing, right? So you're getting to your late 20s and then your career starts taking off as as a writer and then you get diagnosed uh, with autism. And so like everything's changing in a very short amount of time. Yeah, I mean, it really did. Um, you know, I think I had a lot of early success in a short amount of time. I was very, very um, driven. I think I have this almost like, I, I, I don't even know what word I would describe it. It's I, like an almost pathological need to to put myself out there and, and try my hardest at something. And so um, when it came to comedy, I really gave it my all and it really paid off in a really nice way. And um, things happened so fast. And, you know, I was actually, I was so lucky to be making a living from comedy almost immediately. Um, you know, I went to the NFTS, um, it's a national film and television school. And um, I did this course that was then run by Bill Dare. Um, I believe it's not anymore, but Bill Dare, who produces Dead Ringers. And so, um, through that course, we got the opportunity to pitch ideas for Dead Ringers. And um, I think for most people, perhaps they thought it was kind of a homework exercise. And I was like, nope, I'm going to get that credit. I just decided that this was, this was my big chance. And um, I teamed up with um, another writer called Alex Hardy, who is wonderful and talented and brilliant. And she is a proper Radio 4 buff. And so she really had that kind of encyclopedic knowledge of things that I, you know, I was just still learning about, and um, and we just teamed up and we tried, we we pitched thirty ideas or so in the in the first class, and you know he he liked a few, and we wrote sketches, and I think I think it was Brexit week was my first credit, um, just 
absolutely miraculous that they got on because we'd written sketches just on the off chance that leave one because we were like everyone's going to be writing remain sketches what if what if it all goes wrong <laughs> and our sketches are the only ones left and it, that's what happened they were writing until like eight and they, they it all started really late at the radio theater because they were still furiously writing behind the scenes and yeah so there was literally people weren't anticipating uh uh what was it then or was it leave? Yeah, and I don't think anyone thought leave was going to happen. They, they, we had so this you, sort of half-hearted you, attempt at it. So you literally hadn't really prepared. That's, I mean, that's. Well, I, mean, I wasn't in the room, so I don't know no. how much they did or didn't prepare. But I do know that they thought that I, I believe, if, unless I've got it wrong, but I think they they, they did think that Remain was going to win. But I think I did. think five years ago we had more optimism. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. But you know, from a comedy point of view and from a, a human point of view, it is kind of a. It feels like it was a lot more recent than five years. I can't believe it dragged on for mm. that long. And b, it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I think we were all. It, it's just sort of like reminding everyone of like a time before it happened, where you go, yeah, it was absolutely a no-brainer, wasn't it? That yeah. that we were all going to remain. Yeah. Remain? Yeah. yeah. Remain. Yeah. And then we left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I remember someone at the time said, the problem is that, that I remember someone saying that the word remain is a really odd thing and it suggests, whereas what you should say is stay is the nice thing. Whereas mm. as a word, it's a much nicer word. You're telling someone not to leave. Whereas yeah. remain is like a really like, like kind of, it's like remain. leftovers. Yeah, it's like leftovers. It's not, it's not a nice word. Whereas stay and leave are opposites. And one is something nice. You can mm. apply something nice to it. But the word remain is quite a, like a, a negative word anyway. It doesn't feel like that's what you would vote for. I vote, yeah. for, I vote for remains, please. It's such a <laughs> sort of strange, strange word. And yeah, I do wonder if that may have probably had nothing to do with it. But I do, I do agree it isn't, it isn't a great word to put a campaign behind yeah but stay also does feel a bit like you're talking to a dog yes yeah so there's that conversation yeah 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 i'm thinking of someone saying don't leave stay <laughs> i'll it's remain nice. i'll remain i will remain remain also feels like everyone else has left <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> it does yeah but everything is better than brexit yes it is it is i mean yeah. that, that shouldn't be it that shouldn't be it. I do um, remember when Brexit was like a weird word that we like, you know, it was like, oh, yes. not one of these, you know, it sounded like a laxative breakfast bar or something. I, the, I was in uh, Leicester Square and there was a huge group of people that were all going to, was it the OG Leicester Square? And I was like, what's going on? Because it looked like there was a premiere. I was like, what's going on here? And they said, oh, we're all going in to watch the film about Brexit. And I just thought it was like this Scandinavian thing. <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> wow, they really love, they really love Scandinavia, uh, it turns out. And yeah. The opposite. When you find out what it actually means, you go, that is the shittest word that you could have made up. <laughs> Britain's, is it Britain? Anyway, I mean, yeah. So <laughs> this is the kind of material that you were writing, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this kind of A+. Plus. <laughs> and we've had five years to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. But it's... even, you were saying that the book is kind of your life up till 
your sort of early 30s. Mm. But it does feel like you have lived quite a lot. There's a bit that almost gets brushed over that I was a bit, hang on, stay with this. Where you just talk <laughs> about being a pop star for like a few for like a few minutes and it's like brushed over. And you go, what? What? Where did this come from? <laughs> Out of nowhere, you're a pop star. And then it's like brushed aside, like, not anymore. It was more of a pop glimmer than a pop star. There was no stardom. There was, um, there was some... Uh, mild success on an Amazon and very niche Amazon chart at which um, Joni Mitchell had been number one probably since 1970 or um, since Amazon was a thing but um, yeah I mean I, I think I just brushed over it because I don't know why I brushed over it I um, I think just it, it wasn't all that interesting as interesting as it sounds oh it just seemed that it just felt like your life suddenly took a weird turning and it was like well, I didn't see. I didn't see this happening. Yeah, I think also maybe perhaps to discourage people from actually googling it and seeing right. <laughs> seeing what we did. There was, a, I mean, there were some weird <laughs> moments. <laughs> like um, we um, we had a. I, I don't know how this happened, but we cultivated this fan base. So my um, bandmate was um, uh, quite a famous YouTuber already, and she was famous for doing makeup looks, but really like sort of Lord of the Ringsy type stuff. So she had this massive fan base of like, I guess, 14-year-old girls who really like fantasy fiction. And so that was like the niche market that we were targeting. That sounds really sinister. So like, um... <laughs> so like Lordy from the... Uh... From the Eurovision. Eurovision. Um, maybe more. I, I, I'm not sure how I would describe it. We did a music video um, once. She was, she was this wonderful makeup artist and she would always do my makeup first and then get really tired to be like, oh, just so, <laughs> and there was one point where I was coated head to toe, toe in glitter like a statue and she just had some diamantes on her cheeks. I was like, this looks weird. Does this look weird? <laughs> it's just, it's just, I know it wasn't malicious, but it, you're like, if oh, so I hated you... someone, that's what I would do yeah she got tired. <laughs> yeah. tired so you so you were dressed up what you were in kind of makeup as yeah and at one point there were elf ears involved and for some reason she forgot to put her elf ears on so right. i'm just standing yeah, next yeah, to yeah. her looking like i work yeah. at santa's grotto and and she looks <laughs> lovely and radiant and beautiful yeah. so it was um it was a lot of fun it she was made it, she made yeah. it all look like it was all your idea and you were the one you were the one that was pushing for it i definitely was not pushing for the elf ears what year was that then oh gosh um probably around 2014 i think oh wow yeah so quite a while ago um it was it was so much fun while it lasted but it was never going to be my life i think it was just something i had to do um you know my dad was so encouraging of my music and after he passed away i just felt like I wanted to do something to, I think, stay and feel connected to him. And that's what, that's what the obvious thing was, was he always wanted me to do music. But I don't think I really wanted me to do music. As much as I love singing and writing songs, I never really liked performing. And so I think it was just something, a curiosity I had to indulge and I had to see if it was for me and it wasn't. So, and it's sort of folk music, was it? Was that yeah, kind of folk, folk pop. Yeah. Because it like at several times during the book, you kind of talk about your kind of love of pop music, and we've just played "Wannabe" at your mm. request, which is one of your favorite favorite songs. So that's your era, right? It's that sort of mid to late nineties British pop. Is that yeah. fair? 
Yeah, totally. I think that's probably the music that deep down secretly I want to make, but honestly have no idea how to like that. You can't rebottle that era. I'm not like a skilled producer like that. I don't, you know, I, I just sort of sit down and write what's in my heart like a loser. So there's nothing calculated, unfortunately, about the way I write. And so what tends to come out is folksy. Um, but I, you know, I, I, yes, I love a bit of 90s pop and R&B and that's, those are my jams that yeah. I can't get away with saying my jams and too plummy. No, it doesn't work. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> it's live. Things happen. It's as live. <laughs> um, that's, that's what happened with me. I always, because uh, I, write, I write songs and I started off writing very, before I did comedy, I wrote very sincere songs from the heart and I'd perform them. And then people laughed at them. And I was like, <laughs> no. yeah, no. Uh, yeah, it's all deliberate. And then, and then I, just, and I didn't even change the lyrics to some of them. And I just did them in comedy nights. And people were like, yeah, that's the best bit of what you just did. And I was like, oh, um, it's, it's far away from what, we, from what I kind of like would uh, listen to. Um, but so um, if the show is called Fan Club and we have played Wannabe. Um, so... Is Wannabe, would you say, by the Spice Girls, would you say that that is your favourite song? Um, I, I honestly could not say that I have a favourite song. I have about 500 favourite songs that changes depending on my mood and the moment and everything. But I think for me, Wannabe was my, like, oh my God moment as a kid. That was my moment of, what is this? I've never heard anything like this before. This is not um, Mozart or whatever. My mum had been playing at home. This is, like this is something real this is proper and i i loved it so instantly and i think like every time i hear it it recaptures that excitement and that feeling of when i first heard it it had a really good video as well oh where, it did where the video sort of illustrated exactly what the song was about i mean it's like um what year did it come out do you remember 96 yeah, 96 95 and 96 i think it's 96 so you had like these these spice girls and we hadn't met them before and they just all like <laughs> exploded there's um there's that hotel where about hotel they did steal from a homeless man in the video i think like there is a there's a moment where I think they they're not very nice. I, <laughs> you I can say what remember. you like. I don't think it's aged badly at all. <laughs> I think they should stand by everything that happened in that video. Um, it's been confirmed by Natalie. It was 1996. Yeah. yeah. You might want to confirm the maybe libelous thing I've just said as well. No, no, that's it. I mean, (laughs) Joe, what in the 90s, it's the kind of thing now, everything you look back on in the 90s now seems horrific. So it doesn't surprise me for one minute that in the Spice Girls rob a homeless man (laughs) during the video, (laughs) and no one went, that's a bit weird. It's probably just exactly what, that's how I imagine everything I see from the 90s takes place now. It's always got something really odd or unpleasant in it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah they did love thatcher so they did they did girl power in it um <laughs> but um but also it was sort of like i've only just thought about this now but it's kind of like the way that they're all introduced in the song and it's kind of like well this one does this and this one does this you got uh <laughs> m in the place that likes it in your face you know and uh you see and they're like being introduced like it's a 1990s uh version of the monkeys <laughs> where no, all, it is i think right it yeah, is they've all got like a personality i guess that's how you sold music you gave everyone a personality they did it with take that less so i think with boyzone and then you got the spice girls which kind of like and they also they've all got nicknames to like differentiate them and so you felt like you knew them straight away it was like oh they're cartoon characters 
You did. I, I always really um, felt for Sporty Spice as a child because she didn't get to wear all the glamorous outfits. And now as an adult, I'm like, she got to be Comfy Spice. She got to be Comfy Spice. <laughs> yeah. and, and she got to do a duet with Brian Adams. So uh, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. Did you have a favourite? Yeah, always Sporty. I don't know why, because I hated sport. Um, I just liked her. I liked her voice. I thought she was the best singer. And that was, in my mind, the only thing that mattered. I think history has proved you right, though. I think history is like, I think now she's everyone's favourite. Nick? I just felt like uh, she was, uh, she didn't feel like she was trying as hard as everyone. Or she didn't feel like she was trying too hard. So it's just like, yeah, she's relaxed, isn't she? Yeah. She's she's letting her talent, she's wearing a pair of, uh, what, tracksuit bottoms, tracky bum bums, but she's letting her talent shine through. Yeah, that's all I think. Um, but I, I was, I was a Jerry fan. Well, yes, she. Um, I mean, she was a tour de force. Oh, I was seventeen. <laughs> that is it, because I mean, we, we, I'm talking when in the spike. So, 1996, I would have been seventeen. Yeah, so it's well, we're much older. We're seeing it from a much older perspective. Well, you're, like you're, this. You're, but this is your. Yeah, I'm older. a year older. I'm a year older than Nick. But, oh. um, but. For you, that's your kind of gateway mm. into that kind of pop music. And so after the Spice Girls, you would have had... Well, I guess S Club 7 kind of did the same thing by introducing themselves. And uh, so were you very much that era, Spice Girls? Uh, you talk about at one point going to see 911. But that's one of those reunion shows, right? Yeah, that was recently. <laughs> well, not that recently. I think 2014, uh, 2013 or 2014. Um, yeah, that was one of those reunion shows. And oh, bless them. <laughs> they tried. They really tried. It, it's sort of like, you know, uh, my, my husband is um, 40 and, you know, he is at an age where, like, he'll make a big oof noise when he gets off, up off the sofa. And that's kind of what <laughs> I felt like I was watching, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, love you <laughs> yeah uh, that's i mean it felt like watching sort of my husband and two pals pretend to be 911 and it did <laughs> i was worried for their health at one point it did feel like, are they okay up there like they sort of like were doubled over and panting doing the old dances uh. and uh, you know I, I was thinking are we going to have to call emergency services and are we going to phone the wrong number because we're all thinking 911 now <laughs> oh, or nine eleven. Oh dear! <laughs> that's the other. That's the other bad thing about them that, that didn't age well. No, that well, had a different connotation within a few years. I feel <laughs> conspiracy theory brewing here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I think asking asking someone what their favourite song is is a ridiculous question. But I think slightly better question is when it a more straightforward question is what would be your favourite album. Oh, oh man! Ah, uh, possibly one of the early Green Day albums. Um, possibly Jagged Little Pill by Alanis oh, Morissette. Bangers! All, <laughs> it's a whole album full of great songs. Yeah. Um. Oh. Oh no, that's hard to choose. I'm gonna have to get back to you on that. That's okay. Right. Okay. I'm gonna have to do a long a long list and then narrow it down to a short list and then maybe take it to a vote of some kind. Take this very seriously. <laughs> and we asked you about favourite films and you responded when Harry met Sally. Well, yeah. Nathaniel, um, this, is, this is a format point now. We did agree that we would ask the question, 
what the favorite film is and then aye, let aye. them answer otherwise we're just saying facts. yes <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to rephrase that sarah what what are what are a couple of your favorite films sad <laughs> <laughs> that's right um <laughs> just fuck that up for you haven't i um my two favorite films are probably clueless and when harry met sally <laughs> good okay <laughs> no um, i mean when harry met sally comes up a lot and deservedly so i think i think you know when you watch it i remember always thinking oh yeah this is like you can tell that it seems to be based on something like an annual it's got that same sort of sense about it. But now when I watch it, I kind of think, I think it is better. I think it is. I think it's got, it really has pushed it over now. I think there's nothing Nora Ephron could have done wrong, ever. I, everything she touched was just gold dust. Even if it was terrible, it was amazing. You know, Sleepless in Seattle is a horrific premise. I, that's Nora Ephron, right? Um, mm. Yeah, and... Um, just like somebody stalking somebody they heard on the radio and then like uh, sort of kind of kidnapping his son a little bit um and then they they end up together there's no mention made of it it's very weird but um i i just think that there's something in her style and sensibility that is inimitable and like gorgeous and sharp and funny and you love being in that world it's like being in a warm bath you know i i I'm always sad when a Nora Ephron movie ends. I think um, I think if you think about something like Annie Hall, you've got the, and everything else aside, you've got 70s Woody Allen, and it's a lot of it is his humour and his ego and his persona. Mm-hmm. And if you take all of that out of it and you smooth it down and you take out the more surreal flights of fancy things that he used to do, and you, I think, like, yeah, I think When Harry Met Sally is like the last perfect romantic comedy. A classic. It's like a, it feels like it could be kind of um, a Cary Grant, you know, it's an updated version of something classic like a Cary Grant movie. Um, I agree. I think it's absolutely, yeah, I think it's beautiful. I'll watch that. And also for me, I think what's great about When Harry Met Sally, um, aside from... Uh, the script is the fact that it's another Rob Reiner film from that period where he just made about seven or eight amazing films all in a row. And they're all great and they're all different from each other. And I think it really stands out. And Meg Ryan's incredible in it, Billy Crystal's. Mm. And then it's like a non-Star Wars performance from Carrie Fisher. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, but you know, she didn't do loads that would that stand out. Mm. And um, when Harry Met Sally is just brilliant across the board, yeah. Clueless is interesting. I haven't seen it for years and years. And that felt like a very zeitgeisty mid-90s movie mm. uh, when it came out. Uh, was that something you saw at the cinema at the time? No, I didn't watch it until I think my late teens. So, um, yeah, I was late to the Clueless party. But I, I think what I love about it is it's just, it's just timeless. The script is so sharp. I'm watching it with a writer's brain now and just thinking line, perfect line, just, um, you know, I mean, consistently throughout the film. And I think, you know, there's so much charm in it. Um, there's so much charm. And even though the central relationship is, a, again, a little problematic, um, it's so charming and there's so much chemistry between the two actors and Paul Rudd, who hasn't aged a day, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, 
it, it is it's just a gorgeous movie i think it really stands up i think it's easy to write it off as like another teen movie and i just think it's leagues above anything else in that genre um yeah. i feel like it I, I feel like people do think that though i think it does feel like at the time if you'd asked me in 1996 whether that would be relevant three years later i would think no and it's almost weird that it's stuck around because mm-hmm. it's and i remember at the time the joke almost being uh, the big thing in it was, can you believe teenagers have mobile phones? And that was the <laughs> kind of crazy, what are they like in LA? They're mad. They've got, they're only like 15 or 16. They've all got mobile phones. And that being one of the wildest premises in it. And now it's just such a kind of, of course, of course they do. <laughs> Everyone does. <laughs> but I think, it, I think it works as like um, a comment on being a teenager in the 90s, but it also works as a satire on it. So you don't, so you don't, it's not necessarily aimed at teenagers, it's aimed at people. And you yeah. watch it and there's something that everyone can, and also it's Jane Austen, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's based on a timeless story, Emma, so it's based on a timeless story and then you've kind of updated it and because it's all of these things, it's not necessarily a teen movie. Whereas at the time, I guess, you could mix it in with kind of American Pie and whatever and just... But you're right, I think it really... Uh... It, it was trying to do something about that era and it really mm. achieved it. Like in the same way, I guess something like wall street is like works now. Cause you can go, Oh, it's from that. It's that kind of, it does feel absolutely mid nineties in a way that I can't think of anything else that does it better by yeah. actively trying to do that. It's a time capsule, isn't it? It's so nostalgic. And um, I think that's a nice feeling when you're watching it. Cause it's, you know, it's a comforting feeling. It's a, feeling of familiarity in childhood but I just think it stands up on its own even if you weren't a child of the 90s I think you could watch it now and just think um you know it works as a retrospective piece it works as a you know yeah same way Casablanca works Mm. yeah absolutely and when you yeah I mean we talk about Casablanca every other week um (laughs) but when you look at Casablanca it was made at the time it was set and so it's like a history lesson and clueless is sort of like that in a way that something like bad boys isn't where you go bad boys it was made in the 90s but you don't watch it and go this is like a lesson of what people were like in the 1990s but clueless is like this is how they dressed and this is how <laughs> you know uh, they lived it's kind of yeah it's really interesting you speaking of Nora Ephron have you ever seen the film heartburn no i've read the book um, but I haven't seen the film. That's, the, I think, the only thing that I haven't seen or read of Nora Ephron. Um, yeah, well, I haven't read the book. Apparently, the book is incredible. The book is incredible, and I I read it just as I was um, in the middle of writing my memoir, and then I just had a, a breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, no, like, I want to write something, you know, obviously your ambition is to write the best possible thing, and I was like, no, no, this is the best possible thing, and nothing's ever going to be better than this, and I wish I'd never read it, and I hate her, um, but <laughs> I, I loved it so much. It's a, it's a beautiful delicate uh, sharp you know it, it's sort of like uh, it's uh, like like fine surgery like keyhole surgery that uh, that, uh, that doesn't make it sound very nice it is it's, <laughs> it's lovely lovely heartbreaking beautiful gorgeous rage-filled um book i mean you know it, it is of its time there's language in it that i wouldn't use now um uh, but you know um and attitudes and things but uh, it's 
it, so it doesn't quite hold up, but it holds up as a piece of art, you know? Mm-hmm. And we'll find that as we all get older, that things don't age. And I think, I don't know, it's very complicated, but <laughs> I might give it a pass, um, as in a free pass. Um, all I know is that people that have read the book Heartburn hate the film, but I've not read the book and I loved the film. So uh, well, that's would, a good warning. If I were you, I would avoid it. I always <laughs> thought it was interesting that a lot of the films she directed were kind of more, um, they're, they're kind of slightly more fluffy romantic comedies, whereas she'd often give things that felt autobiographical to other directors. And I always thought <laughs> that was quite an interesting thing, as if she felt she was, she'd be too close to the story or something. Yeah, I totally understand that. I, you know, I don't think I could, um, you know, take my life story to screen by myself. I think you just don't have that distance to know what's interesting to other people in the same way. You know, when you're writing a book, you have an editor, but you have more free reign with a book. You can, you know, it's, you can explore things in more detail and, um, and, you know, overdo it and cut back with a script you've got to be um you know formulaic in a way and um and and quick and light on your feet and i think that's hard to do when you're you know you can't see the wood for the trees Mm. no yeah i'm sure that's why i just always found it fascinating that she just would kind of you you do in my instinctively i always think that would be the one you direct right because that's like a very personal story but it is interesting i can totally see it from that perspective as well yeah that someone else should do that it's not for me and it might be triggering as well like you know watching like having to direct watching it from the sidelines is probably probably be quite hard if it's you know depicting moments in your actual life where terrible things happened it's you know sort of like there's something a bit like i don't know psychopathic about Mm. that isn't it like you know it's sort of like um recreating something yeah, like Especially. a room 101, kind of like walking into your personal hell in a way. And imagine having to direct that. And yeah, and it must be very difficult to, um, to, to direct that sort of thing if you're not, you know, without micromanaging it. And mm. being kind of like, no, it, um, it didn't happen exactly like that. You, can you redo it like this? And you're taking other people's artistic interpretation out of it, mm. you know. And so maybe taking a step back just allows people to kind of like adds their own experiences to it and then it gives you a bit of distance and closure maybe yeah and you know that's such a no-no like as the writer that's one of the first things you learn is you don't do line readings like um sorry for me uh you don't do line readings you don't um you don't tell people and dictate how to deliver your words um and that's that can be quite frustrating especially if you've written something really that like where the timing has to be just so and the other person is not quite interpreting it the way you meant to but you do have to step back and be hands off um so i think that yeah you're absolutely right that would be so much harder to do if it's your story so i was going to ask you this earlier so as a as a comedy writer you're writing stuff how do you how um uh Obviously, it's kind of like it's. Do you find that you write in your voice and then you hand it over to other people, and they interpret your voice in ways that you're not, that you weren't expecting? Or uh, yeah, often they make it better um, because you know the kind of people I've been working with have been like proper pros, and I've been quite new. Um, you know, until I guess recently, I don't think I can call myself new anymore. But you know, for the first few years of my career, when you're writing for something like Dead Ringers you're writing for people like Jan Ravens and John Culshaw and pe- people who have been 
doing this for a very long time and know, you know they're pros and they can make a line work in a way that you're like huh, i didn't hear it like that but that's much better do that um so it is actually you know i haven't been in this situation where i've been like oh these amateurs you know like, there's never <laughs> been anything like that because i'm working with people who are just amazing at what they do and um and like i've kind of been the amateur and being like Oh yeah, let's pretend I meant it like that. That's uh, that makes me look clever. Um, but um, at the moment, I'm working with my writing partner. Um, he is um, called Simon Alcock, and he's just finished um, uh, the, uh, the uh, recognition. Yeah, um, I know him. You do. I know him. <laughs> he um, he he is well known in uh, sort of comedy circles. He has just finished his um, bursary year at the BBC, so um, that's quite a prestigious like thing for people who don't know it's like a, a year where two comedy writers get taken on for the year and get to write across all bbc radio shows and um it's 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 i guess like a baptism by fire for newish writers but he's fresh off that and we um we write narrative stuff together um and so a lot of the time you know I'll, I'll sort of put a question mark on a line. He'll be like, no, 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 you're not hearing it right. And he'll, he'll say it. And I'll be like, oh, that is really funny. But like, how are we going to get that across to, to an audience? It's like, you know, that it's meant to be read like that because it absolutely needs to be read like that. So there are frustrating moments when you're sort of, you're trying to convey something like that and, and it needs to be a certain way. But, um, you know, often you can find little ways to do that. Like, you know, throwing in a pause or um if you don't know what you're doing a beat um and um and trying to just direct it in subtle ways with the stage directions as it were yeah i often i've seen it the other way where i've seen something performed and i've heard the joke and gone that's not the joke you said <laughs> it wrong but like it yeah it's interesting but i guess you you're right as well it must also get better something i thought what i liked personally in your book a lot was uh, a few years ago, I had a bit of stand-up that was about the changing of the name of Cocoa Pops to Choco Krispies, only to find <laughs> out in your book that you were one of the people that obsessively voted for a return to the name Cocoa Pops. Oh, I didn't just obsessively vote. I campaigned. Yeah. <laughs> this was my, this was my, uh, this is how I got radicalized. This was my introduction <laughs> to politics. Uh, this was the issue that captured me. I, um, I just was outraged that they would change the name to, to something so crap as well. And it didn't even scan. I'd rather have a bowl of Chucker Krispies. What's that? Exactly. Too many syllables. Too many exactly. syllables. That's what it it is. doesn't scan. Um, it doesn't. So I was furious, um, rightly so. And when they took it to a public vote, I was like, this is my chance. I cannot miss this opportunity. And I, I mean, I went around, I think, you know, I, I, I like to remember myself, myself with a little clipboard. I doubt I had a clipboard. Um, but that's how I picture myself with a little clipboard on people's doorsteps. Like, have you considered how you're going to vote in the uh, upcoming referendum on the Cocoa Pops name change? And I think people just, I, I, I waited while they went to their phone. And they're like, no, it's a free phone number. You have to phone now. And I just sort of stood over them menacing, as menacing as you can be when you're, you know, four foot tall and like a, a child. But Sarah, what, what I can't believe is they've allowed them to change sugar puffs to honey monster puffs that's what i was furious about they've know, allowed it. it it's been fine no one no one spoke up for sugar puffs because i didn't know i didn't know or i would have done something but well, I, no, I totally missed it if i'd known <laughs> you then you would have been hearing from me but uh i feel that yeah. the country's been let down somehow 
Well, I, think... I thought they didn't exist anymore because I couldn't find them anywhere under no, the name. And they're, they're just uh, in a different yeah. section now because yeah. it's honey advertised. monster, honey monster puff, honey Ridiculous. monster puffs. Um, Who wants to eat monster? Exactly. But, but why did they change it from cocoa pops to choco crispies? I think it's what it was called in different territories, and it was easier for them to have it the same everywhere. I think. Mm. Yeah. Crispy is an onomatopoeic, right? And pop is. Uh, so wouldn't wouldn't pop just translate everywhere because it's the noise that it makes when you put milk on it? Yeah. So even choco pops, if you're going to change it, is well, I guess I guess from that perspective, if you're thinking of it like rice krispies, mm. if you called them choco krispies, it was like telling people that's what it is. Oh yeah, I was thinking that rice krispies were called. Oh, God, that does make sense. Was we're called <laughs> Snap, Crackle and Pop. Yeah, so, no, no. And I was like, well, you could call them Choco Snaps or Cocoa Pop. Yeah. Sorry. Why was it no equivalent else? You're both treating me like I've bought this up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to join in, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we probably need to play the game soon, Nick. Oh, right. Well, oh, we're coming to the end of our interview. We are. Sarah, um, but I, it's at this point that I regretfully have to hand you over <laughs> to uh, Nathaniel Metcalf, and we're going to play the internationally well-renowned game Better or Worse. Nathaniel. Now, Sarah, Better or Worse is a game where you have to say whether the next person on my list is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my opinions to score points. Okay, well, it, it, um, I will warn you now, I haven't heard of a lot of people. You will be amazed at how many people I haven't heard of. Doesn't so, matter. Um, I, I think will just make we'll it see. up. We'll see. We'll see. And that's fine. You'll probably, well, given the nature of the game, there's your point scoring ability that it won't make any difference. It won't make Excellent. any difference. You can almost do this at random. Beginning with Jennifer Aniston. Mm. Jennifer Aniston. Is Gary Lineker better or worse than Jennifer Aniston? Ooh, worse. He is worse. He is oh, worse. Wow. He is worse. Oh, I like wow. him. Wow. They can be high cards. High they can cards. be two quite high I cards. High cards. <laughs> I took, a, I, I took a, a, a gamble there and I said Gary Lineker. But yeah. I don't mind Gary Lineker. He seems fine. But not against Aniston. No. Gary Oldman, better or worse than Gary Lineker? Ooh, worse. Better. Oh, really? Yes. All right. It's a national Ga- treasure. Gary Barlow, better or worse than Gary Oldman? Oh, worse. 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 Yeah. Tom Cruise, better or worse than Gary Barlow? Worse. Better. Better. Really? Oh, yeah. Huh? Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either, but he would say better. Uh, Tom Hiddleston, better or worse than Tom Cruise? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to say better. Worse. Worse. <laughs> uh, Tom Hanks, better or worse than Tom Hiddleston? Oh, Tom Hanks is better than everyone. Correct. Morgan Freeman, better or worse than Tom Hanks? Oh, no. Marginally worse, surely. Oh, no. This is so hard. Okay, I am just better, better. Morgan Freeman is better, maybe. I think I think he's Hanks has got the edge on Freeman. Oh. Just, he's just done it. <laughs> Martin Freeman, better or worse than Morgan Freeman? <laughs> worse. 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 <laughs> Martin Scorsese, better or worse than Martin Freeman? Better. What? Better, better, better. 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 Martin Clunes, better or worse than Martin Scorsese? Oh, gosh, worse. 
he's worse. But uh, you know, yeah, you know, so uh, hi, Khan. That's it. That's it. What is your... a, five. Yeah, a five? Five. A five. A five. Right. Well, Sarah Gibbs, you've scored a five. Uh, this is a new season. There's yeah. still everything to play for. <laughs> uh, you are currently last after Dane Baptiste and uh, Marina Sirtis with nine. Kyle Casper with six. <laughs> And then you with five. So it's not, it's, it's still everything to play for. <laughs> I'd heard of everyone, so that's that's a I win know, for well, me. that's good. That's it just good. depends. It just depends on what barometer you're judging your success with. <laughs> um, Sorry, thanks for coming on and joining us this afternoon. Thank you uh, so much for having me. It's been a lovely chat. Uh, your book, uh, Drama Queen, is out now. It Everywhere. is. Everywhere. On... Go forth and buy it. As a book and as an audible, as Nat has pointed out. Um, great. Thank you for coming. Um, uh, that's, that's a goodbye from me. That's a goodbye from Nat. That's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, we're nearly out of the woods work. We're nearly out of the woodwork class, guys. <laughs> um, uh, but so uh, keep looking after each other and uh, we will talk to you next week. Right in. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.